in the world. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has prompted traditionally neutral countries such as Finland and Sweden to apply for NATO membership. Austria, however, has shown no interest in joining the alliance. It has been neutral since gaining independence from the Soviet Union in 1955. In fact, every year on October the 26th, Austrians celebrate their country's declaration of permanent neutrality after World War II. Austria's law of neutrality declares the country will never accede to any military alliance. Vienna's long-cherished position of non-alignment has made it a hub for international organisations, but the Austrian capital is nearly 500 kilometres from Ukraine's border. So is neutrality the best way to ensure national security? The Austrian Foreign Minister, Alexander Schallenberg, talks to Al Jazeera. Alexander Schallenberg, thank you for talking to Al Jazeera. Uh, I guess, first of all, in, in light of uh, the war in Ukraine, we've seen both Finland's and Sweden uh, set aside their neutrality and apply to join NATO. Why hasn't Austria? Our history and our geographic position is very different. And it is part of what Austrians consider as our, you know, uh, policies and has been part for the last 70 years. We are adopted the neutrality in 1955, it's part of our constitution, and it has been a uh, value added for our policies and our foreign policy, and I believe it can be again in the future. But I have to point out one thing. Austria is only military, uh, only neutrally military uh, in the military sense. That means we are not furnishing weapons, we're not delivering weapons to Ukraine, but on every other account, we are not neutral. We have never been neutral as far as values are concerned. We are always have considered ourselves a purely clearly Western country, and in this blatant attack against the very principles of the UN Charter, no country can be neutral, especially not Austria. I guess Finland and, and Sweden would probably make that same argument before the war, but it seems like uh, popular opinion and political opinion in both of those countries changed dramatically uh, since the invasion, but it didn't in Austria. Why, why do you think that is? I mean, our geographic position is a different one. Uh, Finland is bordering Russia. Uh, and Sweden has a very different history. And we, the Austrian people consider that this is part of, you know, our being Austrians to a certain degree. And uh, so there's no necessity, as we are not neutral in this uh, war, and I call it the Russian war, mm -hmm. and not the Ukrainian war, because Russia started this invasion. In this Russian war, we are not neutral, so there's no need, actually, for debate about ne our neutrality. A lot of critics have said that it's morally untenable to continue um, your neutrality in light of, I guess, some of the atrocities that Russia has been accused of uh, in its invasion. What do you say to that? But, I mean, they're completely wrong because, for instance, the Commission on Inquiry of the Human Rights Council of the United Nations is based in Vienna. They're working from Vienna. And there has to be accountability. We are very clear on that. The very basis of our policy and of my foreign policy is international law. And what we have seen in what Russia has been doing is, as already stated, is actually in pure violation of all the principles we have established after the Second World War. And these principles are important for our safety. We don't have nuclear weapons. We do have Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. We have soft power, but not hard power. And we need international law for our own security. So I cannot and we cannot stand by idly watching as one country in a neo-imperialistic 
you know, madness is invading another one. So we are not neutral in this sense and we're not standing by. We, as far as GDP is concerned, Austria is actually number one in Europe as far as humanitarian aid for Ukraine is concerned. Don't you think, though, that it would send a powerful message to Russia if you did join Finland and Sweden and, and apply to join NATO? Well, to a certain degree, yes, but I believe there is also a value, added value in being neutral. And we shouldn't forget, we are seed of the UN, we are seed of the OSCE, we are seed of OPEC, we are seed of over uh, 40 international organizations, and it has also a value. We're the only EU country where the UN has a seat. Um, so I believe there's a value there too. By joining the EU, and you mentioned before that you've almost set aside your neutrality on everything apart from military, when it comes to military. Um, so you've already entered an alliance effectively as members are expected to come to one another's aid in the event of, a, of an attack. So why not just go the whole hog and, and actually join NATO? But I believe there's a misconception. In 1956, when Soviet tanks were entering Budapest and we were full, had our full regained sovereignty for nearly 12 mm. months and, and neutrality, we sided with the Western world on any resolution of the General Assembly of the United Nations against the Soviet Union. So from day one on, we were never neutral as far as values and principles in international law are concerned. The only thing is we don't want to join an alliance, a military alliance, we don't want foreign bases in our country and foreign soldiers in our country. That is the core of our neutrality and has been the last 70 uh, years. So I don't see a necessity and I don't see that we are bystanding, they are watching. Again, as far as, as humanitarian aid is concerned, we're doing a lot more than many other countries. Mm, yeah, no, and there's no argument there. I guess detractors argue that it's unfair that Austria gets to sit back and feel protected because it is surrounded by mainly NATO uh, countries. Does that give you the sense that you're trying to have your cake and eat it too, that uh, that that's at the expense of EU solidarity and sending a message to Russia? We are completely uh, in complete solidarity with the European Union. And uh, as, for instance, the European Peace Facility, which is used to finance military equipment for Ukraine, we do not participate in this part of the decision. We use something called constructive abstention. We don't block the others from advancing, but we're not participating, but we're doing more on the non-military side, financially speaking. We are mm. one of the net payers of the European Union. But in general terms, I have to point out one thing. Um, this world is not only black and white. And I believe, and within Europe, it isn't either. And I think this thinking that either you're with us or you're against us, this is a very simplified way of looking at the planet. We are very clearly on one side, but in military terms, our people and this government will continue to pursue the policy of neutrality. Mm. I guess what I'm trying to understand is why why is that so important to Austrians as opposed to you know, many other countries in Europe? Well, if you look at the history of Austrian neutrality, we, were, uh, we had the four allies in Austria until 1955. And it was part of the deal to get the allies out of the country to regain full sovereignty is that we declared ourselves on a constitutional level as neutral. And at the beginning, Austrians probably had a certain you know, doubts as far as this, uh, uh, this feature, this idea was concerned. But then they made it the, their own idea. And now it's part of, of the very essence of our Austrian policy to a certain degree. And again, and we decided to be the seat of the UN and 40 other international organizations. And we have a very active sense of neutrality. And when we joined the European Union, 
The, then Austrian Foreign Minister Alois Mock sent a letter to Brussels saying we will be in full solidarity with the common foreign and security policy, which didn't exist mm. and it was called differently at the time. And we have proven again and again that this is the case. And there's no doubt. And nobody from Kiev, Brussels or anybody else tells me that uh, Austria should change its policy because we, have very, we know exactly where we stand on this, uh, uh, on this dispute. Is there anything that you, you could imagine that would get Austria to change its stance? Not for the time being, no. Simple as that. Yeah. <laughs> no, like a, like a Russia invading a neighbouring country and, and well, you know, actually, the fallout, the, the global fallout from all of that, you you know, know, um, economically as, as well as, you know, as a matter of fact, As a side. matter of fact, uh, Ukraine is 500 kilometres away from Vienna. Mm. So it's closer to Vienna, the conflict is closer to Vienna than our westernmost part of Austria. And Austria isn't a big country. Mm. And B, economically, are we extremely exposed? Uh, we have invested heavily in Eastern Europe, in Ukraine, in Belarus, and Russia, as did the Germans and many others. Mm. So we are exposed, but we are ready to pay this price because, again, for us, international law is not something of picking and choosing. It's our very the essence of our security policy is based on on abiding and respecting the rules of Pacta Sunt Servanda of the UN Charter. I don't want to live in the planet, and we don't want to live in a planet where you have the rule of the jungle, but the rule of law. Well, I guess one of the the arguments of remaining neutral, of holding on to that neutrality, is that you would be able to uh, be an effective uh, mediator between any countries involved in a conflict. But we haven't really seen that in the last year, have we, from, from Austria? I mean, I know that the Chancellor went and uh, met with Putin uh, a month or so after the, the, the start of the invasion. But apart from that, you haven't been able to cement yourself as someone that could go between both sides. Why do you think that is? Well. A, well, you're right to point out the Chancellor was the last Western uh, mm. uh, leader of government to visit uh, the President of the Russian Federation. But in order to mediate, you have to have two sides which are ready for somebody else to mediate. And we are seeing that Russia is doing everything to settle scores on the battlefield. So there's no willingness at all. We, we listened to the speech Vladimir Putin gave. There was not an ink, not a sign, not anything indicating that he might change his course of action. And that was the message the Chancellor brought home when he visited him uh, last year. So, and we wouldn't go, and I wouldn't like this expression of us going between. We are very clearly sided on the Ukrainian side. We will support Ukraine in re-establishing the sovereignty and territorial integrity. This is a matter of principle for us. The same we did when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. Mm -hmm. What did we do at the time? We had Security Council resolutions, Desert Storm, we liberated Kuwait. And this has to be the goal now, and we stand clearly with Ukraine. It feels like the war at the moment is in a bit of a stalemate, and it's just being ground out on the battlefield. Where do you see it going in the next few months? I fear that we will see the continuation of this war for the best part of this year, if not until 2024. Next year we have elections in Ukraine, we have elections in Russia coming up, and in the US, important, important points. But we see that both sides, especially Russia, is putting everything on the battlefield now. They're really trying to settle things on the battlefield. But both you and I, we know that in the end, history is always shows that peace is done on a negotiation table, never on the battlefield. But we're not there yet. If this continues for too much longer, Ukraine is all but going to be destroyed, you know, economically at least. Is there a point where negotiations just have to start because the West and, and the EU and the, the US and all the other countries that have been supporting Ukraine 
just run out of political runway to do so, as well as money? You know, I cannot foresee the future, but one th principle has to be observed. No negotiations about Ukraine without Ukraine. That is very important. And those people who say aloud, in some countries like Germany and others, we should go back and we should negotiate now, they're actually deciding for the Ukrainians who are fighting for their own homes. And I believe we have to be very watchful not to go down this road. Yes, I'm foreign minister. Um, so for me, we need sooner or later room for diplomacy again. But we're not there yet. If no room at the moment for negotiation, what about a ceasefire? Do you see that being on the table at all in the next little while? I would hope so, but it is again for the two parties which are engaged, Ukraine and Russia, not for third parties to decide that. I believe that we, as far as European Union and the Western free world, we have decided very clearly that we won't stand by if one country in a neo-imperialistic you know, endeavor tries to invade another one. And because if we did so, it would have a repercussion far beyond the conflict in Ukraine. Whether we want it or not, we're in a systemic struggle. It's about the rules we have established after the Second World War. And no, I don't want to live in a, country, in, a, in a world where any other country can decide because they have nukes, because they're bigger, because they're more powerful, to simply swallow up the neighbour. I guess on the, the other side of that, I mean, how prepared is, is Austria and, and Europe and the West, I guess, in general, prepared to, to dig in over the next... I mean, this could go on for years and years. So how prepared is Austria to, to hang in there with the people of Ukraine and, and, um, and keep supporting them? Uh, financially as much as anything else? I mean, you're pointing to a very important fact. I believe the biggest challenge we have now is to keep our unity, because that was our biggest asset. Mm. The one thing Vladimir Putin didn't expect, that the West would stand together, that the European Union would stand together. He expected us, you know, to panic or not to react. That unity is the most important thing. If we are divi divided, then we have lost already. Second is strategic patience because there are no instant solutions. Sanctions are not instant solutions, nothing is actually, to keep our strategic nerves. And we are more resilient and stronger than we believe ourselves. And the last point which is important for me is keep a sense of proportion. Russia won't disappear. We shouldn't ban 144 million Russians. We shouldn't ban Tchaikovsky for being played or, do, or stop reading Dostoevsky. History doesn't change, geography doesn't change. Uh, so no cancel culture here. So these are for me the most important principles but you're right to point out, you know, 24th of February, we say it's like a geostrategic ice bucket thrown in our face. And we Europeans were torn brutally from our daydreams of a post-historic, post-national Europe, or even world. We might have believed that Francis Fukuyama might still be right and our liberal Western models will sort of, uh, by osmosis, be, you know, be, be adopted by others. And we have found out the hard way that the very way we live is for some already an act of aggression. Mm. And we have to act, and I believe up to now, we have done so in a very impressive way. Up, up until now, but I'm talking about in the years to come, because obviously political pressure from the people within countries as they see inflation continue to go up, the cost of living really starting to bite hard. I mean, there's, there's the pressure from the people within those countries that are dealing with their own lives. Surely there will come a point where it's not politically feasible to remain in power while giving billions and billions of dollars to Ukraine while ignoring the, the will of the people in, in your own country. Now, Do you I, see a conflict there? What I'm going to tell you is, would you have expected on the 22nd of February this kind of unity, this kind of sense of cohesion across the Atlantic within Europe? Mm. Probably not. And we, 
in, in, in our countries, we are very good in, in down-talking ourselves, even before the challenge is there. So I say, two years of pandemic, we have went through it and rather, rather successfully. Now, 12 months of war, we have stood together, we have shown that you cannot bully us around, that we are still a force on this planet, and a, a force for good, I would say. So I, I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic that we are more resilient, stronger and more flexible ourselves than we believe ourselves and that we continue in this manner for the next com coming months. I will do my part as a foreign minister of Austria, that's for sure. How has Austria managed, I guess, weaning itself off uh, its dependence on Russia? Because I'm obviously a huge amount of gas was coming from, from Russia to, to Austria. How successful do you think that you've been in, uh, in negotiating that part of the last 12 months? That's a very painful process and an extremely costly process. Yes, we have, by neglect or na by naivety, uh, um, created a dependency uh, on Russia, and we ha we uh, we have been dependent. Eighty percent of Austrian gas gas came came from Russia. We have lowered it now, depending on which months you look at, but in general by fifty percent. Um, but we have to decouple even further with Russia. That's for sure. This decoupling will go on. It's a painful process. It's a costly process because now we we have been talking our. Uh, uh, with the Norwegians, with Italians on LNG gas, which is more costly, obviously. But for the time being, um, Austrian industries, Austrian economy uh, is faring well. We, we had a growth rate of 3.4% at the end of 2022. Nobody expected that in springtime. I mean, here again, the doomsayer always have heydays. <laughs> and they predicted that we will have inflation, we will have insolvencies, um, we will have a recession. Well, we won't. And we won't have a recession either this year. So let's remain optimistic. We are stronger than we believe ourselves. So you, you've weaned half way off Russian gas. Are you trying to get to 0%? And is there any... Well, it, it depends. Half, I'm cautious, because it depends on yes, the month, I know. obviously. Yeah. But, um, yes... Uh, the one thing is we, and that's the shocking fact, we are the country with the longest standing gas treaties with Russia since 1968. And we had the dismantlement of the Soviet Union, the collapse of the Iron Curtain and everything. Gas came and we paid. And for the first time last year, the, Russian, the president of the Russian Federation made something none of his predecessors, not a, in the times of the Soviet Union made, he used this as a leverage to blackmail us. He said, you lift the sanctions, you will get gas. But the thing is, these are not contracts state to state, it's company to company. So he's signaling us, don't ever trust an agreement you make with a Russian company because the Kremlin once asked them to mm -hmm. act differently, they will. And this was a message even heard in Buenos Aires, in Delhi and in other countries. So he crossed the red line, nobody in the times of the Soviet Union dare uh, crossing. Mm -hmm. So there is uh, any commercial uh, entrepreneur has to keep that in mind in future too. I, I just want to talk briefly about the OSCE summit in Vienna where Russian MPs who have been sanctioned by the EU were given visas to attend. It was the first time since the invasion that uh, any Russian MP had been able to set foot in an EU country. Why did you think that that was a good idea? It wasn't a good idea. It was something I was obliged to do. We have seats agreement with any international organisation in Vienna, as do the Swiss, as do uh, the Americans. Remember, Gaddafi was allowed to come to the General Assembly while he was on the watch list under sanctions in the US. So this is part of the deal when you have an international organization in your country. So the seat agreement with the OSCE said very clearly and states very clearly that I have the obligation to make it possible for any delegation to come to the country, whether I like it or not.
Mm. Uh, what we made sure is that they don't abuse it, that the visa uh, and the right to stay in Austria is limited to the very, you know, uh, uh, meeting of the parliamentary assembly. So, and I, the important point for me is, we are claiming that we're defending the international law and the principles of the UN Charter while supporting Ukraine. Mm. We cannot now in other areas have an approach of pick and choose what part of international law we apply. Because yes, I heard the, the criticism saying, but it's morally wrong. Yes, but it's the law. And if I want a rule of law state, an international system based on rules and laws, then I cannot myself undermine this position by picking and choosing when to apply it. I guess those same critics would say, surely your morals come above the law though. Yeah, but then it's, then I'm, I'm, I'm a lawyer myself, then it's over, it's game over, then it's simply what you choose, what you want, it's pure emotion. And one of the things we lack probably most in this conflict is rationality, the sense of proportion to keep our calm, and emotions are important, but there's no solution. And then if I continue down intellectually this path, then the UN Charter is up to, you know, it's above or below morality too. So this is not a world I would like to live in, because if suddenly the emotion and morality say you have to do A and B, although the law states something different, dangerous path, don't go down this way. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I also want to talk um, about the rise of the far right in, in Austria and, and the Freedom Party. I mean, its tagline is Fortress Austria, Closing Borders, Guaranteeing Security. How concerned are you that that message at this point in time is starting to gain more traction? I'm still optimistic that we will have elections next autumn. I'm still optimistic that we will win this election and not the Freedom Party. Yes, uh, these times have been trying, I believe, for any government. We had two years of pandemic, lockdowns, the vaccination issue and all that. So there, there were a high degree of emotionality, of divisions within our societies. And now our task is to mend them. Uh, the problem is, I mean, I entered, this government started in 2020, and actually, since 2020, we are constantly in crisis mode. Mm. Two years of pandemic and now war, just 500 kilometers away from Vienna. So this government has never actually experienced a couple of months of normality, but I believe that for, for the next couple of months that we can show that we are actually working, that we have done our best during the pandemic to keep businesses afloat, to keep people safe, and we will continue to do so also in, in, in view of what is happening in Ukraine. Mm, but I want to talk about what's happening with the people of Austria because the Freedom Party is directly opposed to European support for the war and that seems to be gaining traction. Is that a concern for you and, and your party? And, and I guess Austria's involvement uh, in, the, in the war? Yeah, no, it is because the Freedom Party is obviously trying to uh, misuse um, some emotions within the, and create them within the population. But I believe that the Austrians know exactly that the political party who has had an affiliation with Russian parties, who had, has probably received funds from them, is not a reliable partner as far as Russian policies are concerned. I just want to um, finish, uh, if I could, on, on climate change. Uh, it's been an unusual winter in Austria with nowhere near as much snow. And there was a report out of, from one of your uh, universities, a study, um, that said there could be critical water shortages coming. And they quoted it as being very precarious. What, what, what are you doing in terms of climate change at this point in time? Or is that just completely on the back burner now that you're dealing uh, with, with the war in Ukraine? No, interestingly, all the contrary. Actually, there was a time where I was asking myself whether industry would, for instance, approach us and say, 
guys, we have a problem now with uh, markets breaking away. We have to postpone our goals. Because, you know, the Austrian government is even more ambitious than the European Union. We have decided to be climate neutral in 2040 and only uh, have renewable energies by 2030. So we are more ambitious than the European Union. But actually, it has accelerated the process of transformation, of green transformation within the industries. Many, we have lowered, industry has lowered by 10% its dependence on gas because of the costs because of the uh, question mark over Russian deliveries. So industries and businesses are really already reacting. And yes, we did have a winter where we might have water uh, shortages, I've heard. We, didn't have, we never had that in the past, actually. And normally, we, are, we always say that we have the white gold is, is one of our uh, richnesses we, which we have in Austria. So I'm, I'm here again optimistic that we continue. And I've seen that businesses, CEOs are very clearly pushing now forward, um, not even waiting for the government, because they say we have to take action now and decide where we stand in 2025, 26. We have to uh, uh, explain to our shareholders what we're going to do. So they are advancing actually the, the green revolution in a much a faster path than it would have been, uh, been the case without the Russian invasion. Mm. Just very quickly, how, um, how certain are you that you will hit those climate targets? Well, I, I am certain, otherwise we wouldn't have put it down in law. <laughs> yeah. So, and we are on a good way to it. You know, life is full of unexpected events and we, nobody had expected the pandemic, nobody thought about uh, that Russia would wage a war like in the Second World War in a neighbouring country. And still we are, are on track. So I believe the, the signs are there that we will achieve these goals. Let's hope so. Alexander Schallenberg, thank you for talking to Al Jazeera. Thank you for the invitation.